Hey, hey, you're listening to episode one of the Connecting Marunda podcast. My name is Chris, and joining me this week is my co-host, Jess Agobi. Hello, Jess. How fare thee this blustery October evening? Hello, Chris, and hello, everybody. Uh, it is pretty blustery this evening, but I'm really excited, Chris, because in three days' time, school will be going back, which means I will be minus three small people in my house, and that brings me a lot of joy. You and me both, mate. I've got two difficult boys that I cannot wait to get them back into um, school and into the care of professional teachers that don't shout and scream like I've been doing in... um, the last X amount of months and months and months. It does feel like forever, doesn't it? It it feels like it has been six months, which is seriously half, half a year. Six months, it feels like. Long time. It absolutely does. And to be honest, I think teachers, they need to get paid a million bucks a year for what they do. I've got an epic amount of respect for them after battling through homeschooling for months on end. Well, as a teacher, I'd just like to to pop that one on the record that Chris suggested us being paid a million bucks a year. I think that would go down well, especially at the union. You heard it here. Probably not first, but you heard it here. (laughs) What have we got on today, Chris? What are we talking about today? Well, for starters, we're actually a host down this week as our other co-host, Jess Ness, is busy interviewing candidates for the upcoming Maroondah Council elections. So we're going to be talking a little bit about those elections today. But first off, how about we do an acknowledgement of country? Good idea. We wish to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record this episode and recognize their continuing connection to land, water and community. We pay respects to elders, past, present, and emerging. So, Jess, what's on in Marunda this week? Well, there's 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 actually not too much going on in Marunda. I mean, there is a lot going on, Chris, always in Marunda. But then, because of the stage four restrictions, there's not all that much going on. I mean, people are being very innovative at the moment, I think, with uh, with their events. We've heard that uh, a neighbourhood have been banding together. So we've, there's been a group of like eight or more local families in a, in a street or in a neighbourhood who've been getting together and ordering food um, from Lentil as Anything, which I thought was was a pretty good idea. So grouping together to order bulk food and supporting local businesses, which is kind of cool. And I'd love to hear about that happening in our local community. I think that'd be great. So was that here in Maroondah you heard that or um, elsewhere? Oh, I'm not sure. It possibly could have been elsewhere because I know lentil as anything is uh, is more in a city. It is, yeah. My wife's vegetarian, so we've we've done that a fair bit along with the the veg bar on um, where is it Brunswick Road, Brunswick Street. I can't never remember the difference between the two of them. But no, that sounds like a terrific idea. I guess that's the hope of our wonderful in inverted commas treasurer as he's splashing money at us at the moment to spend it <laughs> and let it go around the economy and support those local businesses. I think that's really important at the moment. So, is there anything in the news this week, Jess, that you've picked up on? Well, I I have been perusing the the local newspapers in particular, Chris, and I I was really interested to kind of have a look at what was going on at the local leader newspaper because I don't know about you, but I haven't received a leader newspaper 
in my letterbox for quite some time. And when I went onto their website, I did notice that the last digital paper that was published was in April 2020. So I'm wondering if publishing has actually stopped since shortly after Easter. It may well have done. That's a good point. I don't remember getting one. The Leader is one of those papers where if I had a cat, I'd be using it as litter material. (laughs) But that local news is still important. So it would be a shame if they've shut down at the moment. And But I wouldn't be surprised if they have, given COVID-19 and everyone being laid off and furloughed and and all the rest of it. So that is a shame. I reckon we should follow that up, though, if we can. Maybe reach out to them and ask them if they ever intend on publishing again. Yeah, and I mean, they are still public. Like I did notice on Facebook that they are still regularly posting on their Facebook page. Um, so there was a an article on there um, in the last couple of days about the fact that da- the Daisies Hotel is going to be demolished. I, I drove past there just the other day and noticed that there was sort of fencing all around the site. Uh, and was quite surprised to find out that it's actually a 143-year-old site. So the site where the Daisies Hotel is, you know, just down near Ringwood Private Hospital, close to uh, Ringwood Marinda Hospital, the old Daisies Hotel near the Ringwood Lake is actually the site where that pub is, is 143 years old. And they're going to demolish it. I thought that would raise the hackles of the heritage people, to be honest. Yeah, demolished uh, to build a plush million-dollar retirement village, apparently. Mm. And with, okay. with aged care also hot in the press at the moment. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm not quite sure if I should comment on that one. <laughs> Well, yes, that is um, – I, I can think of a few colourful words about that, but we'll keep this PG, so um, I, won't, um, I, w- I won't mention them. There was a post also about the Maroondah Festival and uh, the Carols by Candlelight, which have both been cancelled. And I was surprised to see they, they posted on their Facebook page about how many people attend both of those events annually – have a have a crack, Chris. How many people do you think attend both the Marinda Festival and Marinda's Carol by Candlelight uh, on an annual basis? Uh, I'll take a wild stab and say the the candles five thousand people, the Marinda Festival about thirty thousand. You're actually really close. All up, it was forty thousand. So well oh, done. Okay. Yeah, forty thousand for both those events, and they've both been. They've both been cancelled, which is a shame. It is a shame. I mean, I can understand why. You've been a couple of times, haven't you? I've been to the the Marunda Festival once, I think, in the 10 years I've lived here. Yep. But I've never been to the carols. Uh, yeah, Marunda Festival is a great, a great annual event. And I haven't done the carols either. But I know a few people who have been and who really enjoyed it. So unfortunately, they're two big local events that have fallen foul of our COVID year. Well, years hoping we do find some normalcy next year and things start returning to the way they should be. Um, And the only other thing that I really wanted to highlight, because I know we've got a lot to talk about with the elections just around the corner, but I did receive um, a contact from uh, someone at a new independent news 
a local media platform called East Cider News. Uh, now, if you're interested in checking them out, you can find them at East Cider News all one word, .org.au. And their slogan, Chris, is news, views and items of interest for residents of Melbourne's east. So they're covering like Burundara, they're covering Whitehorse, they're covering Maroondah, they've got all of the eastern suburbs covered. And they tout themselves as being an independent local media platform that focuses on showcasing substantial news affecting the diversity of local people and their activities. And it seems like a really, um, really interesting little independent group that could provide us with some interesting news over the coming years. So, yeah, definitely hop on board there and check it out. Most of their news at the moment was mostly focused on Whitehorse and on Burundara sort of areas. But if there is anyone out there who's interested in being more involved in the paper, they're definitely interested in in getting contact from people who might like to write articles or have a chat with them about uh, news items of interest. So there you go. I, re- I was excited to find that out this week. Indie News, that's definitely my cup of tea, so I'll be checking them out. And if you missed that uh, URL, we will put it in our show notes as well, so you'll be able to um, find it that way. As I hinted at earlier, we are heading to local council elections scheduled for the 24th of October. This year, they're a little different, with nine new wards to replace existing three. Some are hotly contested, while Tony Dibb is running uncontested in the Bungalook ward. So what ward are you in, Jess? I'm actually in the Turala ward, uh which is quite exciting. There is uh, five or six people running um, for election in the Turala Ward. How about you, Chris? I'm in Jubilee. So with the Jubilee Ward, uh, there is only two candidates in um, in my particular ward. There's the incumbent, uh, Mike Simon, I think who's been around forever, mm-hmm. uh, and, an up, and a newcomer, Emily Brightside, whom I don't know much about, but maybe we could get one of them on the show to talk to us. Yeah, that would be fantastic. I know um, I've read a few comments on the Connecting Maroondah Facebook group, in the Connecting Maroondah Facebook group from Emily Brightside, Um, and she seems to have a really fresh perspective. So I would be definitely interested to hear some more from her about her thoughts about um, uh, what what she would bring to the Marinda Council. And you've just reminded me to check through that uh, Facebook group because I really don't use Facebook as much as I should. And I think that this election is going to be fought and lost in social media this year. So I'm definitely going to check our own Facebook group as well to see what she has to say. And it's probably a really good time to to quickly just highlight the success of the Facebook group at the moment, Chris. It's a new Facebook group, the Connecting Maroondah one, and it's actually generating a lot of conversation, which is really exciting. Lots of, we're constantly getting new members asking to join the group, and it's really exciting to have um, a, a diverse range of perspectives on some of the issues. That's terrific. Facebook doing something right for a change, or at least, <laughs> you know, being able to grow being able to grow a decent community around um, our local area is certainly a nice thing. Yeah. If you don't know your candidates, you can find them on the VEC website and we'll include a link in our show notes. As we've intimated as well, we are also planning to interview as many of the candidates as we can on the show, but we are running out of time. So if you're a prospective councillor listening to this, it's first in, 
best dressed and we would love to hear from you. Yeah, definitely. And um, I was also thinking that it might be nice to to have a few Facebook Live interviews. So if anybody's interested in doing a little Facebook Live session with me, Jessica Gobi, uh, on the Facebook uh, page, we, we would love to hear from you in regard to that too. We can be contacted at connectingmarunda at gmail.com. So feel free to get in touch with us. Who are we interviewing today, Chris? So this week, our co-host Jess Ness interviews Donna McKinnon, who's up for election as councillor for the Wonga Ward against Peter Feeney and longtime incumbent Nora Lamont. All right then, take it away, Jess and Donna. We're here today with Donna McKinnon. Um, this is Jess Ness speaking with Connecting Marunda podcast, and we're doing a bit of an interview. But before we get started, I'm going to invite Donna to do a little bit of acknowledgement of country. Hi, Donna. Hi. How are you, Jess? Yes. Look, I would like to um, acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that we're on. Uh, we're on Wurundjeri country, uh, as all of um, Marunda is, and I would like to pay my respect to the Wurundjeri elders, past, present, and emerging and acknowledge that this land was never ceded and it always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, thanks for coming, Donna, and thank you for that. We are very fortunate to live on such beautiful land. So we're talking about council elections coming up. You've been brave and put your hand up and said aye. So um, we've got a bit of a line of questions here for you. Um, first up, I just wanted to invite you to talk a little bit about yourself and what prompted you to run for council and why you feel like you'd make a good councillor, what your strengths are that lend you to to doing a good job in this role. I, it wasn't anything I'd really thought about. Like It's not something I'd aspired to for anything at any point in time and I actually don't think that the council does a bad job in general. We, we're very lucky to live where we are and most of the stuff is pretty good, you know. Um, but over the last couple of years, and I suppose it comes down to the fact that as I moved towards retirement, I had a bit more time on my hands to um, look into things and have more conversations with people and even getting onto Facebook, which I did as I left teaching because it's one of those things you're not really meant to do as a teacher, more opportunities to see what was going on. And a few things bothered me a little bit and people were sort of saying to me, oh, you know, you should go on on council and, and, and don't be silly, don't be silly, it's not for me. And just a few little things that I don't really want to be, get into the specifics of it, but I thought, oh. You know, there's some stuff there that I don't think is being done as well as it should be. Again, people kept pushing me. And then when we had COVID, I had even more time and I thought, gosh, this is a time when I'm not doing anything else. And and I'm not saying I want to stand for council because nothing else to do, but I really had time to stop and think about whether that was something I could do. Again, at first I thought, could I make a difference? Because that was the most important thing. And then and so I, again, with time to think, I thought, yes, I probably could. I thought the skills I have as a teacher, which is things like collaborating and you know talking and listening, and being you know being able to work with people and 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 being a quick learner. You were talking before about all the learning of technology. Well, there's always things to learn, and that's what teaching changes again and again and again. So my entire career has been changing and adapting. And one of my sayings was, "Are oh, we teachers? We're nothing if not flexible." And I think that's a really good thing not to be set with a definite thing to go in and go, well, okay, I, I have a point of view, but I need to listen and see what other people are saying, take on board what, they, what their opinion is, don't think I know everything. And I think all that's really important for something like council. 
listening and acting and learning. Yeah, I, I think that's really great. A lot of platforms around council elections are all about what the councillor wants. So it's really lovely to hear that, you know, that understanding that a lot of it is about listening. So that that's great. So, look, I might skip on to one of these other questions, which um, is obviously very prominent with the time. Things are a little bit different with this election. Can you talk a little bit about it? It's a unique election. We've got the new division of the wards. We've got nine wards now and we're holding elections in a pandemic. So how's that kind of changed the way the elections will run and, and your view of how Maroondah's kind of using its space and what the community needs are and kind of working towards a new COVID normal? It will be a very interesting time to be a councillor. It will be. And I'm not going to pretend I have all the answers. I have a I have some idea of what some of the problems might be. Maroondah is not immune from the loss of employment. They're not, they're not immune from small businesses that are struggling. They're not immune from they're not immune from things like family violence that can come out of all this isolation. So there's a large range of things that are going to be happening out there. Um, we'll need to talk to those groups that those people, you know, for example, it might be you know, your Wesley Central Missions or your community houses and all that who are close to the people and, and get their feedback from what they're seeing from the people that they're working with um, rather than us. So, uh, I guess my feeling at the moment with councillors, they're doing some good things, but they do seem to be doing a fair bit of, let me say, outsourcing their care. I know that a lot of community groups are doing an awful lot of stuff and I know that the council is supporting them with funds there might be other things happening behind the scenes. Um, it just seems, it feels to me a little bit hands-off and I don't know that that's the best or maybe the best approach. And I think that a lot of the issues are going to be things that, I guess I'd call them grassroots issues that are going to need people to talk and listen to them. And that might be the council supporting more councillors or whatever. I don't really know the answer because I don't know all the problems and we need to listen and talk to people and find out what they are and look at the roles that council can play. But I certainly know that council can because they can help with employment. They can certainly help with connecting people to services they might need or providing some of those services. It's not a small, not going to be a small task. No, no, and, and very unique times and challenging times that we face. But lots of opportunities too. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And I think that that's one of the things that we are we are learning and some of the phone calls I've had with, there was an older lady, I did some welfare call, calls earlier in the year and I've sort of touched base with her and she rang me up again today to ask me whether she was allowed to do something. I'm, I'm not the expert, but she seems to think I am. But we were talking about, she said, well, you know, even though she's older, she's embraced some of the Zoom and she's doing something at that Central Ringwood Community House that she's loving as a as a connection. And, you know, she she's said, oh, I've done more music than I ever thought I would. So lots of us has found those new opportunities. And the other question you asked was about the difference in the wards. And I think that's going to have, that's going to be interesting because traditionally there have been three councillors in a, a bigger area, yes, but three working together. To me, there's that sense that in any in any group, you will, everyone has their strengths and weaknesses. And I think in a three councillor system, you probably had within those groups, as, as those councillors got to know each other, they probably could share roles and some people would be better at one part. So I think what's going to be important for new councillors is that 
they recognise that even though they they have, I guess, ultimate responsibility for a ward, they can't do it on their own. They still have to connect with the others. And and I suppose it's a little bit like classroom teaching. We have responsibility for one. It's our responsibility. But we can still get out. We know we, we can go out and say, look, there, there's an issue in here. I think you might know something about this this issue that this child's got or whatever and you know do you have any do you have any insights into because what I've tried isn't working you know that sort of stuff so I think that's going to be important it will be interesting to see how it evolves in the way that the councillors work together but you know people are adaptable they'll find a good way to make it work for everyone. I, I think we've all become a bit pro at adapting through COVID haven't we? Yes. Well look one of the other things that's come up with COVID that's been exacerbated by COVID is actually waste you know it's all being home there's a lot more packaging and waste has obviously been a bit of an issue, um, been in the papers, the recycling issues. There's government initiative now to transform the recycling in Victoria. What changes would you like to see happen on a council level to reduce that land? I'm involved in another group and we organised a Zoom with the um, with one of the, the environment people who work with, um, I'm having a mental blank on her name now, at the council and she did like a recycling seminar and we and we talked, it was a Zoom one, it was early in the piece and it was interesting to listen to her about some of the things that, and she was an environmental scientist which did please me, she had only just started working at Maroondah and so it was good to see some of the things they were doing. One of the things that did concern me was that it seemed that they were taking the long timeline for some of the implementations of the four bin system. Now I know that's been held up a little bit by the whole COVID but at that stage, they seem to have picked that, you know, the last date they could to have it implemented. I would like to see that done as soon as possible, not as late as possible. So that that's one thing. Uh, and we don't really need to have disposable masks. We've really all had had enough time if we knew how. So that can be assisting people to actually make their own masks or, or access their own masks easily so that we don't have to use a lot of disposable stuff yeah I mean I made my own mask but I mean there, there a lot of it's education a lot of it's education and it's finding the and that that happens on I've also got another teacher friend who said you know her young kids were the ones who were the, the best they, they've really got it and they go home and teach their families so you know opportunities for communities to educate people educate themselves on what some of those options are and I, I know you know there's the, the zero waste etc we've got to look into those things all of those things absolutely I, I think education is is the way of disseminating information. Um, but one of the other things that keeps coming up and a lot of people have been talking about is that communication side of the education. So have you got plans to better community consultation for council? You got ideas around that? Certainly. <laughs> well, I mean, in the first instance, I think that over the years, and probably it's probably inevitable as, as you get a bigger and bigger community, there's been a, quite a big separation between community and council. It's seen as over there. I think that, again, one of the things that COVID has done is it's got us all so much better at things like Zoom. There's a whole lot of things I was interested in, but I could never be bothered going into the city. I'm not really a person who likes to drive into the city for something at night, whereas I could sign into it. So I think there's lots of opportunities for council to keep, to run those sort of programs online to make it more available. But that being said, there are also people who don't access computers very well. So I think moving forward, I don't really like that word, but that, that it's, a, it's a mixture. It's a mixture of, of making sure people know what's happening, making it easy for them to get the information. One of the things I've said that I would really like to do, and I remember there was a, a Liberal State member a number of years ago, Phil Barisi, he used to run these listening posts. He used to make himself available basically on street corners in the electorate and people could just, and I think Jackson Taylor in Bayswater does it too, just 
be there and people would know that he was going to be there and you could just go and talk about issues. Or the other way around, the councillor could let people know what was happening. I think that one-on-one personal thing is just is important and, of course, then you've got your social media platforms where you can get out email updates. I think it's got to be a mix. I think it's got to be a mix. And, you know, I think it's great that they stream the council meetings, but it doesn't always work for people. And it seems like a lot of it's already been organised. There seems to be a lot of, yep, yep, we all agree, <laughs> and a lot of the nuts and bolts. I think there's a range of things that can be done. I think I'd like to see us go back to some of the old-fashioned community forums, assuming that it's safe COVID-wise, where where you can actually have your councillors there. You might have some topics, but you, people are allowed to have questions and ask them, have answers. I think that would be good. I love the idea of a community forum, but as somebody who works, you know, office hours, often these sorts of things have run during office hours. So, No, they shouldn't. I agree. <laughs> They just, I mean, that's silly. It has to be accessible. Now, that doesn't mean, and we had a discussion about this again in another group we were talking about, which was Deacon Women, that we have to have some things that are available in the daytime for women, particularly for older women who maybe don't work, and men, but we have to have the things for the people who do. These were older women who said, well, I don't want to go out at night. Uh, I don't like to drive at night. And a lot of things were on in the evenings because for people who worked, and that makes perfect sense. I think, yet again, you have to offer a range. So sometimes it might be a Saturday. Sometimes it might be. Sometimes it might be something in the day, depending on what the topic is. But I think it's got to be weekends or evenings. Evenings can be Zoom or it can be a combination. I mean, a bit of technology learning to be done to get it right, where you can have some people there and some people watching from home. But it can be done. We know it can be done. So there's there's some certain groups in the community who um, have language barriers, for example where you might need to, say, go into their communities. Yes, yeah, yeah. We worked a lot of, had a lot of um, Burmese refugees at Ringwood when I was teaching there, particularly the, the Chins and the, and the Karens. So, so yes, absolutely. And it's not, it's not just the Burmese. They're large, lovely, lovely families. And I, look, I think council at the moment does, does try and do a good job on that, but you can always do better. And, again, as we've seen in some of this COVID thing, it's really about not us deciding what they need, asking them what they need. And this was one of the issues with some of the COVID communication, that it was assumed that if they just put something into every language, but the fact was they hadn't taken account of the fact that there were some of the, some refugee-type communities couldn't read. Um, yeah, so there's, there's ask the community leaders, basically. They're all, most of these groups have leaders in their community and you talk to them and find out what they need. Yeah, and identifying uh, that, that's great to hear. Let's talk a little bit about what you'd like to do. What, what's the most innovative action that you'd like to take at council? Innovative. I don't know. I never think of myself as innovative. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to lie. I feel like I'm very good at implementing other, building on other people's original ideas. My husband was talking to me the other day about the fact that we don't have any opportunity to actually charge an electric vehicle. There's a lot of suggestions that, that moving to um, Electric vehicles is good. They're still a bit expensive. But one of the issues is that, well, where do I charge it? So, and I know the council, well, I think I remember hearing them say they had some plans towards, to moving towards electric vehicles in the council fleet, which would be fabulous. But yeah, get, let's get some electric charging stations there. It might only has to be one or two to start with. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. All of those people who live in high rise buildings that don't have car space or, you know, have on street parking, how are they going to charge their electric car? That's that's true, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, but, but you've got to make it, it, it you know, it's, it's a bit chicken and the egg. They say, well, we don't have that many electric cars, so we don't need the charging, but, you know, 
it's probably cheaper to get the charging in the first instance and then the cars will come. Small little electric ones. <laughs> yeah, I like it a lot. I like it a lot. So on the idea of um, climate, where do you look for your information, your sources of education when we're talking climate and climate emergency? I first learned about greenhouse gases in Year 11, which was in 1976. Throughout my last, I hate to tell you how many years, I have had various levels of despair. That, and what's more for my Year 12 physics project on nuclear power, and I didn't like it very much. Of course, they have. it's not as bad now as it was then, but nonetheless. And for however many, 40, whatever years I've been saying, why are we not using solar? So it varies where I get my information from. Now, having said that, I'm not going to pretend that I'm in any way, shape or form an expert because I'm not. And there's so much more that's been developed. My husband worked for CSIRO, so he knows a lot more about some of the battery technology that they were developing there. So I get my information from articles on Twitter and Facebook from particular you know, programs and from people who share information. And, and, you know, so it might come from a Scientific American article or it might, you know, with anything, you've got to check your sources a little bit. But, you know, I read what I read and I, and I talk to people and I listen to people. And having been a math science teacher and sitting with, with um, so, for example, one of my colleagues was the environmental science teacher. So we would have discussions at lunchtime about, you know, look at this interesting bit of information that's come up. So a range of resources. Yeah, it's great to hear. It's one thing to know, you know, to get an answer, but it's another thing to actually have those conversations with people and have it be discussed and actually actioned and thought about and considered. So it's great to hear that. And look on that, what are your thoughts on declaring a climate emergency? I think we should. I know Marinda Council didn't. I thought about that decision and I was a bit disappointed and then I thought, well, okay, they could just be words if you're not going to do something with it. And then I went to another environmental forum and and I thought, no, I agree with you. One of the values in declaring a climate emergency is you are making a statement that you take it seriously. And I think that is important. It's not enough to declare a climate emergency. That's not the point of it. (laughs) Just words is not the point. But if you say, we acknowledge that there's a climate emergency, that, there, that we are facing a climate emergency if we don't take some steps, that there are some inevitable consequences that it's too late to change. We're already, you know, that nasty, nasty storm. We know that's going to happen. I think that that tells the community that it's you as a council are taking it seriously. And so I think that's why making that statement is important. What you follow it on with is even more important. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's one thing to say it, but it's another thing to act on it. But as you said, it is a it is an important statement and it does set precedence for then taking action further along. And look, you know, we can work as much as we like on wellbeing and job security and all of these things, but without a planet. That's right. And look, I mean, I have seen some of the things that the council's talking about and that's good. I just feel we probably need to do a bit more and a bit faster. <laughs> So, you know, I'm, I'm a vet, and even though I'm, I just, yeah, I just feel like it is a little bit more urgent, and I would like our council to step up a little bit faster. And I do think that that declaration can tell people that that yeah, they take it seriously, and this it's not some politically correct thing as someone tried to suggest a little while ago. And I think other some other councils are doing are doing some more forward thinking things, and we could probably be getting on board a little sooner. Have you got examples about other things you've seen that you liked? I was at a webinar where some people from Moreland Council were talking and they've done quite a lot. They're sort of a little bit of a benchmark council at the moment. And I think, and there was also that, was it them or was it somewhere else that might have been another one councils where there was a, 
admittedly it was a consultant, but it was Iron Bark Corporation. It was really talking about having a look at where your energy level, what you're doing now and what's working well. And that sense that there's, you know, if you happen to live in a community that we're already 90% 90% of people have got solar panels. There's not much point putting a whole lot of energy into getting to 100% solar panels. Look at where your gaps are and fill them. It might be electric vehicles. It might be making it easier for people to walk or public transport around your city rather than drive. It depends. So in Maroondah, I would imagine probably one of the key things would be solar for renters and low-income people. So I know that there's the Solar Savers Scheme, which which and there's a number of those number of councils are working on that too, where the council can help bulk buy solar power for communities and low-income people. But I think that the options for to help renters have solar pa- power or panels is um, probably something that would make a significant step in Maroondah. I think there's still a lot of places that haven't haven't got them, and I think it makes a big it makes a big difference to your power. It makes a big difference from a lot of people. What matters is how much it costs them. And it makes a big difference to your power bill. I was surprised how much difference because our house isn't quite perfectly orientated, but it worked. All right. Well, let's do a couple more. We've got um, a more kind of broad opportunity for you to talk about what you see are the major issues facing Maroonda. What's your platform? I think the thing is we know we're a transport hub. So we know we were designated as a transport hub, which meant that we were meant to have more more people living in our in our community around our station basically. I'm personally a little concerned about how fast that's going and how many apartments are going in and I'm worried about the fact that we do raise a block of every blade of grass and every little lizard and every whatever to put it up and I worry about that could have impact on things like our drainage and sewerage because that's all I don't know whether they've replaced enough pipes to do all that. They're pretty well done in Maroondah, to be honest. I walked around there the other day and, you know, they're, they're, they're most of them are nicely done and they're not too high, so the tree canopy's pretty good. But I, I, I wonder how much more capacity there is for that without it creeping out into other parts of Maroondah. So I think there's a big concern in Maroondah by people like me who've lived here our entire life. I was actually born in Bond Street in what was called the Eildon Private Hospital, which is now, there's an apartment block there. There's an apartment block there. So I think change is, change is fine and, I, and we have to accept we've got to have our populations housed and we don't want to have urban spread going forever. I just, I just think there's, a, there's some big issues around the, the management of that and making sure that, that those new dwellings are sustainable, um, as in they're built for a sustainable environment, they're built to withstand the potential um, heat consequences that we're of, of hot, very hot summers, the potential storm damages that we are, you know, that we're likely to have. So I think the building code has to be looked at very carefully. And I know that in like even around my way, a lot of the concern is for well, it's okay, fine. There's two on the block now, but now we've got cars all over the street and we've got congestion. How do we design it? How can we make them design it so that yes, you can do that, you can increase the density, but that you know, there's got to be off-street parking for the realistic number of cars that might be there. So a lot of development is a lot of it and and it's intertwined with the environment because it's that that development is impacting on the environment and so yeah it's about it's about keeping up our our tree canopy keeping our biodiversity not thinking that because the tree was little it didn't matter and not even acknowledging that there might have been like we've got a blue tongue lizard that gets coming out we, we forget he's there and then he scares the whatever out of us <laughs> when he comes out at this time of the year there's a, there's a whole lot of other stuff there that you might not notice so so that worries me and I know it worries a lot of people and and I think people are a bit scared of us turning into 
a box hill when we're seeing plans for now Maroondah Highway's always been ugly for my entire life there have been plans to make it look more better and it still hasn't happened I don't think that Plans for big buildings are necessarily, depends how well they're done, I suppose. That's what it comes down to. And heritage is the other one. Knocking down heritage buildings um, for um, development of any sort. Um, our planning regulations aren't tight enough. Too often they can get overturned and um, we lose things which which in some ways have sentimental value. I guess we have to also recognise the sentimentality of heritage as well. You know, it's part of people's history and culture and I think it's too many stories of things being lost. Yeah, okay. Any other major issues you want to bring up? Uh, for me, the major things is people environment. So I guess people who might have who might need help. I know that there are people, I know we have homeless people in Maroondah, I know we have people, I know that in Maroondah we have a higher than average family violence quota. That's pretty bad. You know, we have all those issues and they are nitty-gritty issues that are down at that people-people level and council is the is the closest form of government to, um, to, to the people. So there's got to be things we can do about that. All that stuff. It, it sounds very, I don't know, utopian, but those, those people matter. People matter. People's circumstances are not always their own fault. People sometimes need a help up, and I think council can have a role to play in that, and I want to be on a council that will take a role in that, and that might be negotiating with other levels of government for services, but I think we have to take a role in that, and then obviously the environment. So to me, it's all it's all intertwined, <laughs> isn't it? Just yeah, all intertwined. And look, I hope you don't mind me putting it out there, but I just want to thank you on a personal note. Donna actually contributes to the soup drive that we do through the community centre that um, supports the winter shelter for the homeless and those displaced during COVID. So it's really great to see you doing boots on the ground work in our community too. So Thank you for the opportunity because it can be hard to know in times like this, being able to do something tangible. And, and let me just say a shout out to my husband because he's done at least half of the cooking. Oh, thanks, honey. <laughs> Good on you. <laughs> oh, no. So it's not just me <laughs> because I've been campaigning. Because I'll cook that this week. So, yeah, shout out to my husband. Too. It's a great program you're running. I was, I'm very pleased to have the opportunity. And thank you for giving us something tangible to do to help. Uh, it does feel good for sure. Look, we are getting on now. So we'll wrap it up with one final question. If elected, what would be the very first action you'd like to take? Look, I thought about it and you were going to ask me that question and I think that the only thing you can do as a new councillor is find out as much as you can about being a councillor and what the, the first program, what, what are the decisions that are likely to be coming up next because some things will already be on the drawing board and bubbling away from before. So I know, for example, that there are, I can't go mental blank, but I know that there's a number of things that will be ready to go that the new council will have to consider. So I guess it's going to be focusing on that. But whatever those things are, bringing to those things my perspective, looking through the lens of how is this going to help people in our community and what's going to be the best decision for our community. And I've said it before, I'm not about doing whatever's easiest. You have to do what's best, even if sometimes it's hard. Just like you trying to learn how to do that technology. It can be hard, it can be frustrating, but you want it to be right and you want it to be the best outcome. And so that takes work, but that's what you do. And that's why you sign up for it. Anything worth doing is worth doing well. <laughs> do it properly. Do it properly. Exactly. <laughs> or to the best of your ability, you know, and and be prepared to ask for help, which was something that took me a long time to learn. I was very much, I wasn't like that as a, as a younger person. A great skill to have. 
I mean, we were talking earlier about wanting to get things done faster and the best way to do that is to look where people have achieved in that area and ask how it was done and get that information going. So do ask for help and um, I wish you all the very best in the upcoming election. Thank you so much for coming on board. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Donna. Have a good night. And that's a very big thanks to Donna for being our first candidate in the hot seat. I reckon that took some guts. Yeah, Donna sounded great, don't you think, Chris? I was really impressed with some of her responses, um, I, I, especially the way she kind of talked about her passion for the community. I really, I really liked that. And I, as you know, an advocate of sustainability, as many people know that I am, uh, hearing someone acknowledge sort of climate emergency and, and talk quite passionately about environmental issues and especially the determination to have factual information about climate change uh, is, is you know, close to my heart. Well done. Thanks, Donna. Absolutely. I mean, it, it was great to see she has a background in science. She's served for years as a, as a science teacher in uh, high school. I was particularly impressed by the way Donna stood. Donna's platform, as I saw it, was really about people and the environment. And I think that's fantastic for the, the, the world we find ourselves in at the moment, don't you think? Yeah, definitely. I think it's really topical, especially considering the recent pandemic and, you know, the bushfires last summer. It's kind of hard to know what to expect this coming summer as the weather starts to warm up and knowing that there are candidates who are really passionate about those issues, I think is is really important. Yes, it does make me wish, to be honest, that Donna was um, standing in my ward, but there you go. That's not to be. No, and uh, you've got to commend Tony Dib, really, don't you? Being the only one in the Bungalook ward. He's a lucky man. He is a lucky man. I was just thinking it must be hard work in his election <laughs> office. You know, he must be absolutely working it at the moment. But yeah, all right, good luck to him. Yeah, maybe we could get Tony on the show. We'd love to we'd love to hear from you, Tony, if you're listening as to, you know, how you're feeling about your uncontested seat. All right then. I think that's it for this week's episode. And my gosh, we covered a lot, didn't we? We did. I think that it's been a great episode one, Chris. I'm I'm so happy that we're doing this. It brings me a lot of joy. It's really nice to be learning so much about the Marinda community. Absolutely. If we can do our little bit for public service, uh, why the hell not? Thank you, everyone, so much for listening. If you have any questions, comments, suggestions, ideas, or juicy bits of gossip, anything at all, really, we would love to hear from you. Uh, and don't forget our email address is connectingmarunda at gmail.com. And you can find us on Facebook with at the Facebook group Connecting Marunda. Um, Chris, I think I might like to do my final last-minute shout-out. Does that sound okay to you? Go for it, mate. This is my final five cents worth. So our shout out this episode is for Aussie bread tags. Uh, and I had a friend on Facebook who raised this, raised, brought this to my attention. Aussie bread tags for wheelchairs are collecting literally billions of bread tags. They sell these bread tags onto a recycling company in Adelaide who use them to make 
beautiful bespoke homewares for big label companies such as Country Road. And the money that they receive from the sale of these plastics is used to purchase wheelchairs for disadvantaged people in South Africa. It's a fantastic little initiative to support. Uh, and I keep a bunch of old bread tags in a in an old bread bag in my laundry somewhere, along with all my other different bits of recycling bits and pieces that I need to send off. So they will definitely be receiving my bread tag sometime soon. You can just uh, search for them via Google or on Facebook. Um, I'm sure they're probably on Instagram too. Uh, Aussie Bread Tags, have a look for that. Aussie Bread Tags for wheelchairs. They have plenty of local collection points. I had a quick look and there was one in Kilsyth, there was one in Croydon, they're all over the place. Yes, and a shout out to the wonderful Laura Baxter from the Connecting Marinda Facebook group for this hot tip of the week, Aussie bread tags for wheelchairs, Chris. That is probably the most exuberant shout out I've ever listened to. So thank you for that, Jess. Excellent. (laughs) Until next time, you've been listening to Connecting Marunda. Thank you, everyone.